Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello, and once more, welcome wherever you are in our great country, or as you say, around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. Always excited, fun to have good, interesting guests talk about real issues that often are simply not addressed uh, in the uh, two parties that that are carrying on in our country today, as opposed to libertarian values of honest, open discussion and uh, and inviting interesting guests. And one guest I have today is actually a fellow that I really don't know very well. His name is Charles X. Gormally, G-O-R-M-A-L-L-Y, and it, it really actually began because he contacted me to uh, see if I'd be willing to be a guest on his show, uh, and so I turned the tables on him and asked if Charles would uh, be a guest on mine, or on ours, I guess, and here on All Rise. So, Charles, welcome. Happy to have you with us. As I say, we don't know very well each other very very well. So, so give us a little bit about yourself. Uh, who is Charles Gomali? What's your background? Thank you, Judge. In, in fairness, you're welcome to everybody across the nation. It is interesting, particularly in this time of of pandemic where we're all hunkered down at home. But thanks so much for welcoming me onto your show. I'd also note that that I did, you know, our, our acquaintance really is just developing. But it, it started a little more than uh, a year and a half ago when when in reading some of your materials that you've been posting online and your videos and obviously some of your books, I realized that you're a kindred spirit in a market that's developing here on the East Coast in New Jersey dealing with cannabis, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about. My, my real life, my professional life, has been really spent in the last 40 years as a trial lawyer here in New Jersey and New York. Uh, in the last couple of years, I've also become barred in both Colorado and in California as my practice starts to uh, travel a little bit across the West Coast. Ultimately, my hopefully some of my personal life will end up on the West Coast as well. So, in my, in the forty years that I've been doing litigation, it's somewhat reflective of the firm I practice with. For most most of that period, uh, we're extremely active in the healthcare uh, and real estate markets, particularly, and and the litigation practice that I engage in is somewhat reflective of that. So we and, and I've I've had a tremendous career and really satisfying career in uh, confronting challenges to insurance company regulations as to uh, providing uh, payment to healthcare providers. Our practice is is fairly focused on representing actual healthcare providers, the hospitals and the doctors and the surgery centers that are so vitally important to keeping everybody healthy. And there's a natural friction in that system between healthcare providers and insurance companies who are really driven by a, a their profit motive, and, and the less they pay the provider, the better. And there's an unfortunate um, consequence of that, how, it's, how impactful it becomes to patients. At the same time, I also do a lot of work in, in uh, residential real estate, particularly the multifamily industry. And New Jersey, uh, similar to California, uh, one of the few states, I think, that can say that we get involved in rent control, 
we've, I've been involved in the rent control uh, discussion and regulation really since it first came in in the Nixon administration or after the, the price controls that were imposed in the Nixon administration and have watched that uh, practice wax and wane with the economy. And, you know, I, I hope hopefully we'll get around in this, because in, I know these, these uh, presentations tend to move along pretty quickly, uh, to talk about rent control and what's happening recently in it uh, in response to this sort of economic catastrophe that we're working through with the pandemic. So I've really um, came to the, to the cannabis practice, which is somewhat new in New Jersey. We have a a licensed medical regime in New Jersey that's just really, frankly, starting to get off the ground, and a lot of political pressure to move towards an uh, adult-use regulated marketplace. So it was in that context a couple of years ago, in looking around for thought leaders in that area, that I really found you. And I give you a lot of credit anytime I speak to professionals in this area that uh, you're the first one that really educated me about the use of the proper terminology. We've all known it's been around forever, but talking about it accurately is very important in furthering the public discussion. So we always refer to the an adult regulated marketplace uh, rather than just legalizing it, because legalization, I think, implies a lot of uh, moral approval that some folks don't frankly agree with. So uh, I'm really, really happy to spend some time talking about these issues with you today. Well, you've covered a great deal already, Charles, but uh, I go back to the Nixon administration, which you just mentioned, and it really surprised me. And of course, I was a lot younger then, uh, weren't we all? But he impo- imposed wage and price controls, and boy, they just rebounded very badly, and he even acknowledged that it was just a mistake. So, okay, let's not hesitate or delay talking about rent control. Let's talking about it now because I, I, I quote Milton Friedman a great deal. And he says that we should judge our programs by the results, not their good intentions. Now, I've quoted that numbers of times here on All Rise. And rent control is one of them, that if you do keep the landlords from being able to get a maximum return, what will they do? Well, they will, first of all, stop taking care of their buildings because I'm not going to get any more money for it, so so why should I? Number two, they'll try to maybe turn them into condominiums or something so that they can get more of a return, or they'll turn them into parking lots for that matter. So it results in a lot less supply of exactly what you're trying to accomplish, namely more housing, because the more housing there is, then the more competition and the lower the prices would be because of that competition. So have on, Charles, uh, rent control, yeah. pro or con? You're, you're spot on. And every, every uh, prognostication and, and predicted result that you mentioned occurred and is occurring in New Jersey. So with the context of the 70s as being the, the rationale, at least for the state of New Jersey, to first say, we're not going to impose statewide rent control, but we're going to leave it up to the wisdom of the 323 municipalities we have in New Jersey to decide whether or not they want to have rent control. So the first thing they did was cede the ground to uh, individual municipalities. And fortunately for New Jersey property owners in general, and certainly specifically landlords, most communities in New Jersey do not have rent control. But as you might imagine, it's a incredibly powerful political tool uh, because, as I tell my landlord clients, 
look around the room. There's more tenants than there are landlords. That means there's more tenants showing up at the ballot box. And that's a formula for local politicians, certainly in our urban areas, to create energy around a rent control ordinance on the theory that I'm here to protect you. You know, the tenant is going to be protected through a rent control ordinance. So the first thing that happened in the late 70s, shortly after the adoption of these ordinances, only in a few municipalities, our larger, we call class one cities, uh, Fort Lee, Newark, Jersey City, what you saw happen in the early 70s was exactly a conversion of rental property into owned property by converting them into condominiums. In fact, literally, my my partner, George Sodowick, who just recently passed away a few months ago, literally wrote the book on converting rental properties into condominiums in New Jersey. And a lot of my early on practice was dealing with the friction point between a property owner who's now converting the property into an owned regime. And that does, in fact, take rental property off the market. It certainly does not create one unit of affordable housing. Uh, The next thing that happens is this death spiral on rent control properties where municipalities have limited landlords to either a cost of living uh, pass-through rent increase or something less than cost of living uh, on a variable basis, and there's no consistency across the various towns that do rent control. But the, the theory of it is they, they regulate the annual increases that a landlord can pass through to the tenant. So in, a, in the universe of rules of economics, the landlord looks at this asset that they thought had potential to charge market rate rents at, and now they're charging significantly less than market rate rents. And that leads a landlord to question how much investment are they going to continue to make in the property. As a physical asset, these assets need constant investment. And if they don't, it might not be the first year or the second year, but certainly within a relatively short period of time in the in the uh, real estate business, you'll run into significant depreciation of the standard uh, of housing that's been available to, to tenants. Again, not something that government, not an intended result of the of the power to regulate rents, and yet it in fact happens all the time. And generally what that leads to is more government, more housing inspectors to come out and attempt to enforce housing codes against landlords who've long ago made determinations that they're barely going to try to keep their property sat- uh, satisfying building codes. So that's sort of a negative uh, a result unintended consequence, and as well as growing additional government regulation, which is counterproductive. Frankly, most of the professional landlords that I represent would be more than willing, and in fact, when they operate in rent con- in non-rent control settings, the way they approach it is exactly uh, 180 degrees different than in rent control. They know that if they improve their property, if they put the new kitchen in, if they if they spiff up and add additional tenant emoluments to their common areas, they're going to attract higher paying rentals into their building. So what does that accomplish? That taps into the power of the market. It it uh, motivates the landlord to make the investment. And in return, the landlord gets a higher rental. Now, that is counterintuitive to creating what is generally referred to in New Jersey as, quote, affordable housing. Now, and the reality is many tenants think, well, if I get rent control, I'm entitled to affordable housing. 
really the affordable housing regime that was created in New Jersey in an effort, a good faith effort, to create more uh, more housing that's available for folks at certain income levels has been a disaster. We really haven't created enough units of affordable housing targeted to people of certain level of means. Rent control by law in New Jersey is not means tested. So we've all read stories, and you hear more of them centered on in New York City, where generations of families get their rent control department passed down to them. And uh, finally, when, when that runs out or a landlord's able to recapture that property, they may be able to bring it up to market uh, rent. But the reality is it's not creating affordable housing. And most importantly, in New Jersey, getting a rent control department you can have any level of income to get it. So uh, they don't restrict availability of rent control or below market rents to people who actually need them. So government hasn't targeted the remedy when they look at rent control. They didn't anticipate the counterproductive nature of rent control. And in fact, the marketplace uh, visits all those rate of horribles on the housing industry. So spin it ahead to how does rent control operate in a pandemic? So now you've got government looking at rent control properties and looking at tenants who might, and and not just tenants, but a lot of folks being at least temporarily uh, on the unemployment rolls. The reaction of government isn't to say, here's a group of people who are out of work and need help and need financial assistance. And maybe we can give an exception to the recent actions of improving unemployment payments to folks who are temporarily out of work. But the reaction in rent control communities is to tell the tenant, and we're, we're involved in filing lawsuits on this now, tell the tenant in a rent controlled building, you don't have to pay any rent increases to the landlord. So the government has shifted the responsibility it has to protect those that are unfortunately displaced from employment onto the landlord who's having enough trouble meeting his expenses operating a rent-controlled property. And you have large, I mean, large cities now in New Jersey passing these ordinances only applicable to rent-controlled properties, not free market properties, uh, and saying, you know, that 1% or 2% increase you thought you were going to get this year, you're not going to get it. It's gone. Uh, and the other real vagaries about rent control in New Jersey that's fascinating is they always say, well, we're passing rent control to increase affordable housing. Thank goodness the state legislator in the late 80s realized that, well, we're not really creating housing with rent control. So what we're going to do is pass a state law that says if your property was built after 1988, it's totally exempt from rent control for 30 years. So you have two, you have local government claiming they're promoting affordable housing by adopting rent control. At the same time, you have the state government saying, we know the marketplace won't build new housing unless we exempt it from rent control. It's a little bipolar, to say the least. And no, it's led to this it's, bipolar housing policy in New Jersey. It's a lot bipolar. Let's not be modest. But while you were talking, Charles, and, and thank you for that, I, I certainly agree with you in your assessment. And it's it's nice and all right because we get different people's perspective, but we pretty much all end up in the same area. But while you were talking, I was reminded when Mao Zedong was r- running communist China, uh, he decided because 
he could decree by the, the government would do this, the government would do that, and then, of course, you will kowtow. So he decreed that, look, we need to have a war on sparrows because the sparrows are eating our crops and making them uh, unserviceable. So let's kill the sparrows so we'll be able to have our apricots go to fruition. So he ordered this, and it was very successful. They killed all the sparrows, and they had an infestation of insects like you just won't believe, and it caused a famine of you know a million people dying. That the government intruding into the marketplace simply doesn't work. So you get Section 8 housing, and you start then having all of these bureaucrats. And that costs money, and that slows things down. I heard the comment, and, and correct me if, if you've heard it differently, that at least in California, about 30% of the cost of a new house or a new apartment unit is spent trying to comply with government regulations. So if you want to reduce the host of cost of housing, get the bureaucrats more and, and tame and, and, and get away from that. Have you heard the same type of argument, Charles? I'd say at least 30%. And, and the way you translate that in New Jersey is in the multifamily industry, if you operate a property with more than four rental units in it, it's subject to a state inspection regime. Now, fortunately, the state only implements it on a five-year cycle, which is, which is a really reasonable inspection cycle when you're looking at a physical asset that's up and running. They come in every five years and you get a long checklist of any particular defects. The state actually hires the same, the local inspectors that are employed by the town to do this work. Well, you'd think that would be sufficient to operate a multifamily property, but in fact, the local government, the same people who are hired by the state to do these five-year inspections, come out on far more frequent periodic inspections. In fact, Every time an apartment unit changes hands, a new tenant comes in, it triggers another inspection. Um, So so you have these overlapping inspection regimes that the state has sort of, you know, put its hands up and stays out of the battle. But it's not only time-consuming, it requires, you know, your superintendent's time, uh, the time to deal with the inspectors themselves. But, of course since we're talking about the government, there's a fee involved as well. Every time somebody comes out to inspect your apartment, it's $150 in some communities. Sometimes it's as high as $350. And you're talking about an apartment unit that generally is going to probably have a a pass-through rent increase in a rent control community of under $50. So year-over-year increase of rent might be, uh, on an annual basis, might be $500 total increase of income, and yet you will have to pay $350 at the beginning of that year to the government in order to get a piece of paper that says, yeah, now you can rent this uh, property. And suffice to say, the stories I hear from some clients about how these are really non-inspections, you know, somebody showing up and basically handing you the piece of paper and you hand them a check. It's really just an exercise of how government overreach doesn't accomplish a purpose, the purpose really being to create safe and up-to-code housing, and yet creates an inefficiency and a drag into the system. So I think you're right. You're spot on in terms of that. Well, that shows to me that you should vote libertarian. That we are reality-driven. And you, what one comment you said among many that there are more renters than landlords. I really hadn't thought of it like that because that means more people are going to be voting who are renters 
than landlords. So give me this free stuff. Oh, you're going to protect me, which is, of course, counterproductive and, and it results in unintended consequences. So reality says, no, let the free market take care of this instead of having all of these various bureaucrats come out and, uh, like you say, uh, if it costs $300 to get an inspection and basically all they do is give you a piece of paper, I don't know. You probably can't even rent your new place until you've had the uh, inspector come out. So that probably causes additional delays, does it not? Absolutely right. In fact, in, in a suit that I'm about to file against the city's rent control regime, the mayor uses rent control as a way to really promote his advocacy on behalf of tenants. He'll, uh, and, and he'll withhold these rental certificates uh, and not only delay the product from coming onto the marketplace, just to really uh, let the landlord know who boss is. You know, that's the, that's the it's, it's a very dangerous political tool in the hands of municipal politicians. But I'll tell you one thing that really surprised me, and it's really somebody like you, who's a committed libertarian and now going to take this on a national level, hopefully, and, and correct all the problems that we're talking about. But what, what really surprises me is you would think, it's somewhat insulting, I think, what the politicians do. They say, hey, there's more, there's more tenants than there are landlords, so I'm going to back rent control because the tenants must love rent control. The reality is when you really engage tenants who have an interest and really want to talk about the issue, they understand the rules of economics just like we've talked about. They understand that if the landlord doesn't have an incentive to improve the property because the municipality has gutted rent increases, and per- many towns prevent rent increases between tenants. So if I'm renting an apartment for $600 and I leave, the next tenant has to come in and pay the same amount of money. So and that 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 right to raise rent between tenants in rent control communities is called vacancy decontrol. So many towns that have rent control don't have vacancy decontrol. Tenants know that there has to be an incentive for a landlord to improve the property. So when you engage them in a real discussion about rent control, they may want to have rent control to protect themselves between year after year, but they also understand the building they live in is not going to improve and the common elements of the building is not going to improve unless the landlord has some financial incentive to do so. So probably the biggest surprise in my rent control advocacy work has been that tenants can be the allies of landlords, the ethical landlords. I'm, I'm not, I try not to advocate for slumlords or people who take advantage, but generally speaking, the rules of economics will dictate that if the landlord is shown the way to increase uh, his profitability from running his operation, he will become a more ethical operator. And, and, well, we, and that really was a surprise to me that tenants understand that, probably but, more so than the politicians. You're not telling me that incentives matter, are you, Charles Gormley? Really? <laughs> incentives matter? We had a, a guest on a prior All Rise show on actually February 28th of 2020 named Paul Leon, who is involved with the private sector combating homelessness. And it was really exciting, the, the, the prospects that he had. And I would throw into this quickly before we go on our break, Charles. Uh, and again, we've never gone through this, but I would adopt Milton Friedman's what he called negative income tax. I call it a stipend. But for example, just quickly, if somebody earned no money, 
I would give them a stipend of $15,000 a year, just using these numbers as examples. I've done it before here on All Rise, but $15,000 a year, probably broken into 12 monthly payments of $1,250, and it automatically be in your ATM account. And then if you're homeless, if, if the private sector knew that you had that money automatically, uh, they would pretty quickly uh, react to putting in low-cost housing, maybe dormitories-type, room and board-type living, where the private sector then could actually address the homeless issue. Uh, incentives would matter there, and they would know that, for example, maybe they'd get $1,100 automatically out of your ATM account, but then you would have, you know, another hundred or two dollars to take care of your necessities, but you'd have a roof over your head, you'd have meals, and the private sector would be able to do that. Again, under the rubric of incentives matter. Uh, quickly then, you have a radio show as well, Charles. Uh, what? Give yourself a plug. Uh, what is your radio show? What do you do? How can people listen to it? Sure. So our, our radio show is really found in um, in Cannabis Radio, and the name of the show is Cannabis Realities. And this really derives way outside the real estate area, but somewhat derivative. Many of our real estate clients were active and want to become more active in the cannabis space. Um, in New Jersey, and I think similarly in California, you, you've got a strong home rule component, and towns can actually uh, determine whether or not any cannabis business can be conducted uh, within the municipality. Even even now, we're just in a medical regime, but uh, ultimately it will go on the ballot uh, on the ballot place uh, on the ballot uh, to le- uh, legalize or come to a regulated adult use marketplace. Um, so, so the the radio show itself, Cannabis Realities, is really driven to folks who want to get have some straight talk about cannabis as a business and understand its current challenges. While we have a you know federal prohibition still in effect, uh, scheduled as a as a Schedule One uh, narcotic, which really takes it, uh, which really has a lot of again unintended consequences from the government standpoint, uh, and and really hobbles uh, local governments and state governments from entering into a real robust national marketplace. So, part of the discussion is talking to thought leaders who are currently engaged in the cannabis marketplace in New Jersey and Colorado and California is some of the most developed marketplaces and we're now reaching now reaching out to the Massachusetts market as well because they're they're moving along pretty quickly as well. And and the mission really is to develop some content, you know. Good. Charles, you you have whetted our appetite. We're gonna take a break now and hear some really good messages and then we'll come back and talk about cannabis realities. So stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, this is Judge Jim Gray, and welcome back. You heard, again, the theme from my musical, Americans All. And uh, if anyone is interested, go to JudgeJimGray.com. You can hear the Irvine High School singers uh, singing some of the songs. And uh, soon we're going to have on our website the full version as well. But if you're interested and you have a school that would like to perform it, uh, if it comes through, all rise. There's no royalties attached to it. So so please feel free. And I've also been asked, as I as regular listeners know, by my wife to inject a little silliness into this, at least intentional silliness as opposed to unintentional. And I was hearing that a woman mother was teaching her old children uh, at home because of the coronavirus. And as she wrote, homeschool day one. And I'm already wondering how I can get this kid transferred out of my class. <laughs> so that's a reality. For, I, that's an obligatory chuckle, Charles Gormali. Thank you for that. My guests are required to chuckle to my silliness. But and, and I would like to, to go to cannabis because uh, we certainly have that in common. Uh, I'm not really boots on the ground as far as uh, knowing many of the properties, but the overhead uh, over, oversight is, is certainly important. But that's you. You also have a background in healthcare. You you work with people in the healthcare providers, and just like in rent control with with landlords, I see that the government intervention into the healthcare field results in what prices going up. Because if I and I've used this example before on all rise that if I went to a doctor today and I have a knee problem, say, Doc, I've got a knee problem. He would say, she would say, well, Jim, do you want an MRI? And my response would be, well, let's see. I have Medicare. I've got Anthem Blue Cross. It probably costs me something like $25 for a copay. Sure, why not? And if I were paying the money directly, and he would say, Jim, do you want an MRI? What goes through my mind? Well, doctor, what's it going to show me and how much is it going to cost? But today, if you ask that question, the doctors won't even know how much it costs because that's not a factor. So the costs, of course, go up. And the and the doctors, of course, get reimbursed less because that's where the, the result is from the, the only give and take is to reduce the compensation to the practitioners. So the government is really making a mess of our health care system to the degree that, as I say, if you're interested in having your health care run by the equivalent of the Department of Motor Vehicles, we're well on our way. Does this fit also into your understanding, Charles Carmelli? Yeah, I, I tell you, my, my sense of the entire healthcare paradigm is, and we've thought about it a lot over the years, that it's a, I can't think of another commodity, a good or service, that is consumed as we currently consume healthcare. You really have created, because of the large federal payers on the Social Security side and the Veterans Administration Program, also many people don't understand it's one of the largest deliverers of health care in, in the country, uh, and it's certainly a single-payer system of the, the Veterans Department. But the government in, in, you know, intrusion and 
side by side with private insurance company intrusion into the healthcare space creates this paradigm where if I'm sick and I go and you're automatically a vulnerable consumer at that point and usually consuming something that you don't really know what you should be buying. You're going to somebody. It's not like I wake up and say, hey, I want to have a steak for dinner. So you go to the supermarket and you buy a steak. When you're when you're ill, you're going to a doctor. You don't know what you need. You don't know what you need. You're depending on somebody else to tell you what you need. And then when you look at the pricing side of this model, most folks, most fortunate folks are going there with a protection of either the government Veterans Administration or a private insurer behind them that's going to pay for that, whatever they're told. So it, it's a very, it creates a different purchasing modality where when I go to the doctor, I might not be so concerned, unless it's a particularly invasive or crazy uh, recommendation I'm hearing, of what the doctor wants to do to me. But my first concern is going to be, is my health insurance going to pay for this? And that leads to, and by the way, it's not like a normal consumer thing. If I go in to buy a car, I'm not worrying about which insurance company is going to pay me to buy that car. My first inquiry is, okay, what do I, what color do I like and how much is this going to cost me? And yet that discussion with the government and the private sector insurance companies involved in the discussion flatly doesn't happen. And that is a very, very unique model and one that necessarily drives costs up. So you have a natural tension in that system between government payers, private payers, looking at the folks that we represent, the physicians and the hospitals, and and there's a constant pressure for those entities to try to push the price down. The competing uh, side of it is I've got you know hospitals that are operating in in real world economics. They've got to pay their bills. They've got to hire their staff. They have to deal with the unionized employment sometimes in their uh, in the healthcare delivery system, and they're constantly pressuring to get higher reimbursement. So you have the and and the one person that's usually not part of that discussion is the person receiving the treatment. So the payers and the and the people who are receiving payment have a push-pull going on, but the consumer, the one who is most impacted by the delivery of healthcare, isn't part of the discussion. Now, that's just sort of a paradigm that's difficult to understand. I don't know that that's the only reason that our healthcare system is what it is, but there's certainly, that is why there's so much superficial um, attention and desire to move to a single payer system. Let's let's not have all this multiplied uh, push pull going on. Let's just have it be one large entity that's going to deal with all this. And that is not going to introduce uh, private sector economics into the equation. A single payer no, system. It will inter- it'll introduce the Department of Motor Vehicles. Correct. But, and what, but interestingly, what you do see in some, and we've counseled physicians, but unfortunately it doesn't apply across the board, physicians that are in high-demand areas. You know, if you, if you have a knee problem and you need a knee replacement, well, I don't know about you, I'm going to go to the guy that is known for doing the knees, right? Usually that guy, if he's got that kind of market presence, if he dominates that market, he has the luxury, this provider, and it's the exception, not the rule, to say, guess what, folks? I'm not playing in your game. I'm going to quote a price for the knee surgery. You can take it or you can leave it. or I can negotiate it with you, a payment plan, however he wants to. Pure free market transaction. And he operates out of network. 
And what you have in response to that, and, and government in New Jersey has responded to it, with the power being pushed by the insurance companies, is to eliminate out-of-network reimbursement from insurance companies. So insurance companies are essentially pulling back from reimbursing folks who want to go out-of-network uh, and capping their insurance policies and, at this, and trying to end any kind of a private sector uh, independent discussion about pricing. And it's really, it's put, it's almost put an end in New Jersey. And this is, this is something out of network war that's been happening in New Jersey uh, probably for the last 10 years. But we're in the final strokes of it because now providers are all being pushed into working through hospital, large hospital networks or large insurance networks. And yes. you're, no, you're not going to have these entrepreneur top flight physicians able to basically go out and say, hey, I'm, I might do 10% or 20% less cases, but I'm going to end up making the same amount of money because I'm going to price it according to the marketplace. So I think this is a very complicated area, and I don't, I don't pretend to have the answer. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you morph this system and take government out of it and take private payers out of it um, without a real market disruption. Let me, let, created, let me give you a, created a mess. Let me give you a libertarian proposal then, a kind of libertarian, at least pragmatic. I would issue vouchers based on a sliding scale that people could take use in the in the market in the private marketplace to provide for healthcare insurance or deductibles or whatever and then allow competition back into the marketplace and i think that that would take care of people as well as bring the prices down and the innovation back so at least we can we can give that one some thought but we've got to go with truth and advertising carl charles uh, we advertised that we were going to talk about cannabis realities and now is the time uh, you do know that Regardless of the status of the laws, for example, the state of California where I live, cannabis, marijuana has been the largest cash crop in the state of California for a couple of decades, regardless of whether it's regulated and controlled or not. And I expect that that's true pretty much all around the country. Give us some cannabis realities, Charles Gormelli. So uh, medical cannabis, which is the only regime currently uh, legal or allowed in New Jersey, is done on a very limited scale. You need to get a, a script from a doctor. It's got to be a face-to-face -face interface. It's not as liberal as California's law. And and I think and, and I'll tell you what what I tell cannabis uh, advocates and clients who are interested in this space. I think w while I I understand why uh, the uh, medical cannabis move occurred. I really want to say that it's way more important to get to an adult use regulated marketplace. And and not only is it a natural uh, transition from having uh, growing and distributing the product, but it's also um, you know government is tapping itself out in terms of uh, ability to tax property owners, ability to pr pass through income taxes, and frankly. You know, the states are so strapped that until we're able to successfully pull government off a lot of our backs, we need to pull them at least out of our wallets. And one way to do that is to at least tap into the revenue sources that might be available by exploiting a cannabis marketplace. And it's not just the direct taxation benefit. And in fact, in, in many ways, the benefit and the savings that government would realize by ending its failed war on prohibition and ending 
it's an enormous expense of operating a judiciary system where the a very very healthy healthy percentage of our prison population are there because they engage in a transaction involving selling something that grows out of the ground to another person that the enormous amount of government resources spent to incarcerate folks generally falling on the on the least um, the most disadvantaged percentages of our population the folks who can't afford a lawyer the folks who don't live in a town where a cop is going to cut somebody a break and they're going to be incarcerated for this as a crime so the government stepping away from cannabis prohibition laws and embracing a regulated marketplace has a direct financial incentive to the government, uh, targeting those revenues to address um, opium addiction, uh, you know, opioid addiction, as well as drug education programs, all of which you could use from this new source of tax revenues that we're seeing Colorado enjoy, California enjoy, maybe not up to expectations yet. But the reality is not only can they tap into those resources, they then save enormous amounts of resources, let alone the social justice aspect of incarcerating people who are materially disadvantaged and can't keep themselves out of the system just for lack of money. Because candidly, we and, and I think you've seen it in your probably your experience on the bench, I've certainly seen it, and I really am not a criminal lawyer, but there is just no question that, that disadvantaged folks don't get the shake out of the justice system that people who have the ability to hire a private attorney, make bail, and actually you know, negotiate a deal so that they don't get caught up in the system. And you know, a law that improperly uh, is weighted against the disadvantage is one that we really just shouldn't continue to tolerate. And, and we frankly just can't afford to tolerate it anymore. Let's empty some of this prison population and save some money along the way. Well, we've said here a lot, Charles, and you may not be aware of this statistic, that the United States of America has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. Mm. And, and a lot of it is caused by this failed enterprise of drug prohibition. I've actually written, or I was on Reason TV one time interviewed and was talking about who is winning with regard to the policy of drug prohibition. And I came out with, with uh, six groups. The first is the Mexican drug cartels. You know, they're making billions of dollars a year untaxed. Uh, and actually, and it's a statistic, we don't seize more than 10% of illegal drugs in our societies. And the more accurate representation is about 5%. So any of these seizures are just a cost of doing business. They just, they just understand these. So the Mexican drug cartels are winning. The juvenile street gangs are as well, to the degree that Charles, they are using it as a recruiting tool for those people you were just talking about. But hey, you want to make some money? You can never make as much money in your life as you can by selling these drugs. And we're luring our young people into these juvenile street gangs. The third group is actually the police. You know, I'm not pointing the fingers at the police and say you're failing us because they're really doing a better job now than they've ever done before. More arrests, more convictions, longer prison sentences, more more drugs seized. But so they're getting a lot more money uh, by doing this, which is kind of ironic because you have a real partnership of the good guys and the bad guys to perpetuate this failed system. Uh, the fourth group are politicians that keep getting elected by talking tough with regard to the war on drugs, not smart, just tough. Uh, and this, of course, that's our fault because we're electing them. And then the fifth group are the politicians. 
uh, excuse me, I said the politicians, the last group really, and people don't focus on this, it's the terrorist organizations all around the world. Osama bin Laden on down, most of them get their primary source of funding from the sale of illicit drugs. So we, it, it, we're just taking it on the chin in so many ways. But let me change the subject a little bit, Charles, because you're really knowledgeable in this area and have a different perspective than I do. But I believe that the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, perpetrated a crime by our Congress, by our government, against us. Because not only did they take marijuana out of circulation, including hemp, which, by the way, is a wonderful industrial product, but they also prohibited any research with regard to the properties, for example, of CBD oil, which I believe is going to be a positive medical revolution in our country, has many wonderful, pro uh, helpful products into it, but they prohibited that research such that we're only beginning to catch up now. And, and uh, have you seen that sort of thing, too, from your medical marijuana understandings yeah in fact the in fact the first uh show that i put up on cannabis realities was an interview with a formulation uh specialist which is really where the science of cannabis which is fascinating to me is going to go um product development by understanding the cannabinoids and terpene profiles of the cannabis plant has been hobbled by the government Classifying it as a Schedule One drug and allowing researchers to only acquire product from one source, University of Mississippi, where the government grows cannabis, uh, has just hobbled the industry. It's prevented research uh, and development uh, into the attributes of the plant. Uh, many institutions that would, this research would take place at won't allow that research to happen because it involves research on a Schedule One drug, which essentially, when it's on makes Schedule One, it's a declaration that there's no known positive benefit uh, to this substance, and it's known to be addictive. That's that's branding it as a Schedule One drug, and unless and until that softens, and there has been some uh, recent softening of that and, and the monopoly enjoyed by uh, the single source to grow cannabis, which I'm told is was not a high-quality product or specified product or genetically controlled product, uh, they're loosening that, and they have licensed other folks to get involved in grow and research, even while it's still scheduled as a Schedule One drug. And I take that as a positive development after decades of arguing with uh, drug enforcement folks at the federal level to declassify the drug. At least they're taking the first step, which was promised, I think, from during Hillary Clinton's campaign, that you know, opening up the research for cannabis is a very important uh, aspect of it. And until that happens, uh, the, the, again, the federal government, um, and, and I just think I'd, I'd, I'd add one other, uh, one other component to your uh, gallery of rogues that benefit from prohibition. And that, and I go right back to the beginning when Nixon started this war on drugs. And some of the, the Nixon tapes that were released demonstrate that one of his motivating factors of adopting uh, strong anti-cannabis laws and scheduling it as a Schedule One drug, it was always intended to be temporarily put on Schedule One. But one of his motivating factors, and he's, he's on tape saying it, that he really wanted to suppress the uh, African-American vote and he believed that this is this is first of all he had some standard misconceptions. This is a popular drug among black folks, and if we make this illegal and start throwing people in jail, 
It's the original form of voter suppression. Now, we've had all different derivations of voter suppression since then, but I always like to come back to Dick Nixon and give him props for being the first guy that figured out a way. Let me make something so uh, so nasty and illegal and it's, that it's going to lead to mass incarceration of unfortunate minority populations, first form of voter suppression. So, you know, I think, but going back to just this research side of it, lifting this from Schedule 1 will free up these unbelievably creative scientists who can isolate the components of cannabis mix them both with traditional medicines as well as with other elements of uh, cannabis, grow product that can actually have higher contents of certain CBD or CBC in it, all of which have some very, very fascinating um, impacts. Now, the thing we don't know yet, because the government won't approve drug trials involving cannabis, cannabis that's grown, uh, is we don't have an, it hasn't been subjected to the rigor of double-blind studies, which is what we would do for all pharmaceuticals. We need, at a federal level, we need to lift the Schedule One classification and let, again, let the private sector loose on this product because it's an unbelievably fascinating product in the thousands of years of its history. It's never been known to kill anybody. You can't even say that about aspirin. And aspirin kills more people every year than cannabis has killed in its 5,000-year history. And yeah, the, you know, where are we going with it? We need to open it up and really understand it. Well, you know, as a libertarian candidate for president, uh, I would, in effect, take marijuana, cannabis, off the schedule and allow each state to decide how best to, to treat this whole issue. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that is a, I always get choked up when I talk about this, but, you know, yeah. that's called the concept of federalism as well, that allow each state to do this, and if somebody imports marijuana into a state without that state's laws, that could be a federal offense. Would, would you go along with that? That's absolutely. I mean, states, states have to feel that they can still uh, manage their government, except when we come, when we get into the area of essential human rights. Uh, I think deciding whether it be even be on a local level, if a, if a municipality, even right now, a municipality can decide we don't want to have a, a, a liquor store in our town. Or we only want to have one liquor store in our town. That's appropriate regulation where people live, and they've got the right to determine their own destiny. If they if they feel otherwise, you know, change your government or change your community, uh, and and open open yourself up to these business opportunities. But the states uh, be are, are great laboratories of experimentation, and we would be tremendously advantaged by allowing the states to regulate the cannabis, the flow of cannabis between their borders, as well as whether or not that business is going to be conducted within their borders. But it begins with the federal government taking its boot off the neck of the industry and, and declassifying it from Schedule 1. Well, and we were talking about terms earlier, and the if you say, would we legalize marijuana, I, Judge Jim Gray, do not want to legalize marijuana. And if you think legalized drug, think aspirin, like you said, which, you know, you can, <laughs> hate to say this, but you could commit suicide by taking a handful of, mar of uh, aspirin and swallowing it, it thins your blood. But if you understand that we would treat it like alcohol, if you would strictly regulate it and control it for adults, which is literally what we would be doing, uh, you would then be able to reduce these problems. And one of the huge problems, Charles, that you know is if you're going to buy black market marijuana, you have no quality control whatsoever. And, and quality control, of course, is huge. And also industrial hemp. 
it's it's gone back. You mentioned thousands of years. This does too, and it goes back to uh, George Washington. His plantation raised hemp. So did Thomas Jefferson. So did pretty much all of them. So are you addressing the hemp is- industry as well as medical marijuana? Because think gunny sacks. Think think uh, all kinds of of profitable products that come from hemp. Uh, Is that part of your litigation practice as well, Charles? Hemp, hemp, tremendously popular uh, as a product, uh, as a uh, product raw material. Uh, How it ever, you know, it got caught up again with the Marijuana Tax Act and and basically destroyed that really vibrant industry. Uh, New Jersey has allowed uh, hemp farmers, again, the Garden State, to start planting. Uh, Again, still a lot of impediments for even for hemp growers to deal with a banking system, which technically on a federal level, that hemp is still on Schedule 1. The the hemp, I think, when it's let loose, is a building material, a fabric material. It's it's a renewable resource. It it, it reduces carbon dioxide in the air. There's so many attributes uh, and and advantages to allowing uh, hemp production to be unleashed that it's, it's a wonder that the government gets in the way of businesses like this. And when you talk about going back to the cannabis side of the equation, your, your cartel dealer or your, your street gang dealer isn't going to check somebody's identification before they're selling them cannabis. They, they'll sell it to anybody who's got the cash. They also, they don't include in their product that there's purity connected to it, that it's manufactured with good manufacturing quality. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's been carted in the back of some truck. It's filled with mold. It's filled with pesticides. I mean, I, when I was in college, the big fear on the college campuses was that they were trying to eradicate cannabis by spraying paraquat on it. Well, that didn't stop cannabis. It just meant it was going to get harvested sooner, delivered through the black market containing paraquat. So until we unleash the regulated marketplace, we can't deliver a clean and consistent product to consumers. I'd say going back to this formulation specialist, the one challenge in cannabis is to create products that give a regular outcome. You know, you go have your martini or a glass of wine at the end of a tough day, you know exactly what you're doing. You know exactly the result you're going for. Cannabis hasn't achieved that type of status yet. And when it's unleashed, when it's regulated, when the market powers take over, you're going to have cannabis beverages, you're going to have light cannabis, micro-dosing cannabis, all of which have tremendous therapeutic benefit because of the combination of the CBDs and the, and the CBCs that, that create really good health. Indeed, Charles. Well, thank you for being on All Rise, and we have been hearing, ladies and gentlemen, cannabis realities, well, also rent control realities, healthcare realities from our guest, Charles Gormali, Charles X. Gormali, actually. What does the X stand for, quickly, and then we're going to have to sign off? It's Xavier. (laughs) Xavier, good for you. Charles, thank you for being with us. There you have it, folks. You know, we hear realities here on All Rise. We talk about openly these issues. Uh, If you disagree, fine, let's let's talk some more. So tune in next week again for All Rise. And in the meantime, I close by saying, which I mean, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my bonds.
that help us stand tall. We are Americans all, strengthened by bonds that help us stand tall. We are Americans all.